Good morning. Please turn this morning to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. Deuteronomy, chapter 6. Begin reading in verse 1. Now these, now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it, that ye might fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, and which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of this life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would instruct us this morning in what it means to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and with all of our strength. I pray that we would do this not so that we might gain glory and renown for ourselves, but rather for your name and for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. When considering all of the various things that one could say to the body this morning, Something that has been strong in my mind is what it means to love the Lord our God. A lot of people view loving the Lord as any number of things, all of which have part of the truth. For example, some people believe that loving God means knowing what his word says. In other words, knowing the right answers to the questions. So if someone asks, what do you believe about this? A person can say, well, I believe that this is what it teaches. What do you believe about that? Well, I believe that that is what it teaches. So, so some people think that loving God means knowing the, the answers to the questions. Others think that loving him means making sure that you have all the commandments in a list. And you take your pen every day, you go through everything, and you say, all right, I've done this one, done this one, done this one, haven't done this one, which is good because I'm not supposed to. And, and you, just, you follow the list every day. That's what it means to love God. Of course, there are others that say that all that's required is just that you do some of the right Routines. For example, uh, as long as you're baptized, as long as you say the right words with your mouth, you profess faith, uh, then you can pretty much do what you want. But you know, particularly on Sunday, as long as you, as long as everything's in place, it's all right. Um, I've heard in times past some of my Baptist friends make fun of the Roman Catholics that they know who say, well, look, those folks, all they do, they sin up a storm during the week and then they go to confession they think it's okay. And then the same person, the same person, sin up a storm and, he, and at the end of the day he says, as long as I confess my sin, I'm good. Because I prayed the prayer, I'm Okay. 
and so I can do whatever. And, and did not see the discrepancy between those two. It's the same thing. If you think that you can follow certain routines and yet be okay with the Almighty simply because you go through a particular ritual, whether it's private prayer, whether it's reading, whether it's church attendance or whatever, that's wrong. But there are people who think that. All of these things, though, are important. However, none of them constitute alone loving God. So what I'm going to tell you this morning uh, is certainly not original with me. I've heard it from many other men, in particular um, people like Doug Wilson, Dr. George Grant, and others. But the source is God's Word. That that's where we should understand that's where we should take our teaching for what it means to love God. So how do we love Him fully? How do we love Him with everything? And I want to give this morning four elements of loving the Lord our God. Number one, we are called to know the truth and confess it. We are called to know the truth and confess it. In Psalm 119, verses 15 and 16, we read, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Christianity today has a problem. Actually, we have several, but there's one particular I'm going to speak to right now. And that problem is we, in general, don't know the truth. Christians say, I love the Lord. And even in a more vague way, there are people who say, I love God. But they have no definition to what it means to love God. I mean, some... I've heard even among those who I teach in school who are professing Christians have views of what it means to love God and just just views of who God is, period, that about 16 or 1700 years ago were called by the church at the time apostasy and heresy. Though, I mean, and it's not that they are purposefully believing this, but just they've not been taught any better. So that's a problem. In addition to the fact that there is a laxity of teaching precise doctrine, there's also a lack that there's also attack from the outside to hold to precise doctrine. The idea is. Everyone has some portion of the truth and we just all need to come together and, and, you know, and be tolerant of each other. Now, I will admit that Paul teaches in his letter to the Corinthians that there are different gifts, that there are some people who are able to do some things better than others. You know, there are some, to use the body analogy, there are some that are hands, there are some that are feet, there are some that are eyes, there are some that are mouth. But that's not the problem that many have. Today, a problem is, to, is saying 
You believe in Jesus? I believe in meditative spirituality. I believe in thinking positive thoughts. And you can go on and on and on. And even when people who are supposed to be recognized Christian leaders or spokesmen for the Christian faith can go on television and say, we're all climbing up the mountain and Christians just are climbing on one side and other spiritual people are climbing up others. That's false. That is contrary to the doctrine of God's Word. If we want to use a mountain analogy, that would be fine. Jesus is the mountain. He is, in Scripture, called the rock. And only those who are crushed on the rock are going to be united and see the Father. Everyone else who is not who does not fall upon the rock, the rock will fall upon them. And they'll be ground to powder, Jesus said. So, we must both know the truth and profess the truth. So what is it, when I say this, what do I mean, first of all, when I say know the truth? Well, there's two particular things I'm referring to here. First of all, I mean we are called to know the Word. The Scripture itself. We just read when David said in Psalm 119, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes and will not forget thy word. We cannot afford to be ignorant of the word of God. Now it is important, yes, to remember great things outside the Word of God. And I'm not denying that. And I will say that if we work and if we train ourselves, if we discipline ourselves to memorize in general, we will be better able to hide the Word in our hearts. So I'm all for memorizing you know, good poetry and for memorizing portions of great speeches and things like that, but the core element of our learning and of our knowledge should be based in the Word of God. Because if we don't have this, we don't have any other foundation on which to build. And if you don't know the Word of God, someone who comes along supposedly speaking on behalf of Christianity can twist you into a pretzel. And you think, well, makes a little bit of sense to me because you don't know the Word. So, it is important to know the Word. And I'm not telling you that you have a responsibility to memorize all 150 Psalms you know, in a couple of weeks or that you need to have the book of Romans taken care of and finished you know, by the end of this month. But just start somewhere and go a little bit at a time. You know, if you just take one verse a week, that's not impossible. You say, well, I could do more than that. Well, good. If you can, go ahead. But you know, just start there. Because if you go with one verse a week, for many of us, it will be one verse more per week than we were learning before. So start with by knowing the Word, but also we are called to know doctrine. There are many verses in Paul's epistles that talk about 
doctrine. But I'd like to read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, when Paul is warning, well, he's exhorting the church in the spiritual gifts that he's given of apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers. And he says in verse 13, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. Paul warned the... the Ephesians here, he also warned them when he spoke to them in Acts chapter 20 when he spoke to the elders. He said, there are going to be fierce wolves that arise from among you that are going to lead the sheep astray. They're going to carry them astray. So what is the answer to that, Paul writes in his letter? It is to know true doctrine. And when I say doctrine, that is not necessarily just memorizing Scripture in and of itself, which is important, and as, as I said, that's the foundation. But doctrine is, the, the word in Greek means instruction. It means know the whole of the matter. So, when someone says that something like, you know, Jesus really didn't accomplish everything that he said. He really... He, he just didn't do it all. Well, we know that according to Scripture, if one promise of God failed to be fulfilled, then Jesus is himself not God and we have no hope of salvation. In systematic theology, that's called Christology, the study of the doctrine of Christ. Now see, if you believe that Jesus did fulfill all the promises of God in the Old Testament, that's, you know, a part of what's called Christology. Congratulations. Now, that's a small thing, and I'm not saying you have to know all the words and have all the terms down. But I am saying that you need to know what God's Word teaches about various sections and about various subjects of Scripture. So we're called to know the Word and also know doctrine. But not only are we called to know these things, we're also called to speak these things. It's not enough just to have knowledge and keep it to ourselves. We must tell the truth in love, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4. Boldness for the truth is not a mark of the rising generation. So young brothers and sisters, hear this. The most popular thing for you is to not be dogmatic, to not be straightforward about what God's Word teaches because the claims that Jesus made are too exclusive. The things that God's Word calls sin, we call choice. We call lifestyle. 
God's Word calls abomination. God's Word says, I hate it. I'm talking about divorce here. Okay? It's really easy for a minister to rail against sin that's not present in the church, in in a particular local church. It's not quite as easy to rail about things that really touch us. We must be faithful professors of the Word. We have abdicated as a people. The followers of Christ have abdicated our calling to confront the lost world with God's truth because we are afraid of what people might think. And in the meantime, people are dying and they're going to hell. And we fear to tell them of that because, well, in the name of sensitivity. If someone is, or if someone was, was literally dying, yet he was ignoring the fact that he was dying, is it really hateful to confront the person with the fact that you're dying and I know the cure for your condition? Is that hateful? Or is that loving? If someone believed that, that he could, you know, regularly go with wet hands and operate on an electrical circuit with bare wires, and he hadn't been killed yet, is it loving to say, well, you know, he's done it for this long and he's been okay. Why not? No, it's not loving. It's not loving at all. It's an attitude of hatred in Scripture. And so, instead of hating these people, we need to love them and we love them by speaking the truth. And for many of us, the reason that we don't is because I believe we fear man and we fear that the Holy Ghost will not bring what we say, He will not accompany what we say with power. And in both cases, we need to develop, by the grace of God, some faith to speak the truth. And I, please, I, I've been raised around fundamentalists all my life. All right, I know that that there are people who are hard. Okay, I understand that. that, that there are people who have no love at all, and they love, you know. Trying, you know, treating sin like it's a a fly on someone's head, and they're going after it with an axe. Okay, I, I know that there are people like that, but they're not nearly as many as they are stereotyped to be. Most of us will trip over ourselves in backpedaling if we get even the hint that we might have spoken something that would sting. And Jesus did not apologize for speaking the truth. Neither should we. So the first part of loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind is knowing the truth and professing it. Number two, we are called to obey God's commands. Loving Him means obeying His commands. In John 14, verse 21, 
Jesus said, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself in him. So if you have the commandments of God and you keep them, that's one way that you show your love for him. And as we learn more about his commands, we are called to grow in submission to those commands. It's not enough just to say, I've got the Ten Commandments, I'm good to go for the rest of my life. Thank you. I'm going to follow those and then anything else that I hear, if I don't really care for it, well, I don't have to go with that. No, going back to what I just said, we are called to know the truth and that means growing in our knowledge of the truth. And as we grow in our knowledge of the truth, then we can grow in obedience to Him. We have small children right now and I'm thankful to say that there is more obedience now. You may not believe it, but there is. There's more now than there was a year ago. And that's by the grace of God, and I'm thankful for that. But there is. And there's two parts to that. It's, first of all, them growing in ability to understand its maturity, but also we've been able to express more of what is expected. And they are able, as they grow, to follow it. Well, it's the same way with us and the Lord. We are called to grow in love for Him, and we show that love by submitting, by learning of and submitting to His commands. It's easy for us to remember a lot of times what we've heard and what we've been taught. It's a lot harder to actually do those things because we're born with a will that opposes submission. We hate submission. We don't like it. And we excuse the lack of it. But as servants of God, that's not an option. Submission is called for. The commands of God contradict many times what we want. So learning to obey Him goes against our natural flesh. But it's important for us to pursue obedience despite the fact that we don't want it. And I've heard some people say at times that the reason they don't obey in this area or that one is because I just I don't feel like that it, I feel like if I were to do that, even though I don't want to, that I I'd be a hypocrite. Because there's a lot of times, you know, there's there's things that I don't want to do, but I do them, and I feel like when I do them that I'm not being faithful to, to what's in my heart. So you know, so I'm actually I'm being a hypocrite if I. No, you're growing in the discipline of grace when you do that. Let me give you an example. Heard someone say one time, you know, God's Word says that He loves a cheerful giver. However, whenever it's time after I get my 
paycheck, when it's time to give, I don't, I, I, I can't give with a cheerful heart. So I'm just not going to give. But believe me, Pastor, when the time comes that my heart's cheerful about it, I'll give. And I, I didn't really hate to tell him this, but I, I said, well, you know, if that's the case, you will never give a dime if you're waiting on your heart to catch up to what God's Word says because your heart is desperately wicked. That's what our hearts do. You know, we must learn to discipline ourselves with the Spirit working in us so that we can form our desires to what He says. That's what obedience is. We don't always feel like being obedient. But just because we don't feel like it doesn't mean that we forego it. Brothers and sisters, many of you have went to work before. Some of you have had to wake up at a slightly early hour to get to work on time. My guess is you don't always feel like waking up at that time. It's an inconvenience. Your body says, stay in the bed and sleep. However, you don't tell your boss, you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite, so I just stayed in the bed and I, and I, I won't come to work when I feel like it. He would laugh and say, you're fired. Well, thankfully, the Lord does not fire us just because we're disobedient to His commands. But the excuse of, I, I have to feel like it, it, is a useless one. And even here, at times, obedience requires courage because true obedience in our day will look very different than what people outside the faith do. C.S. Lewis said that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. Meaning, it's not, we can say courage is great, and it is, but where we show that courage is great is when we display love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, all these things when we don't feel like it. Courage is actually at times giving of myself when I don't feel like there's anything left to give. It means leaving a gathering that I would like to be, you know, an event or something like that that I would like to be a part of because I have an obligation unto the Lord to worship Him. That's what it means. And then when pressure is applied to, you know, look, it's just one time, why not? Say, mm -mm. because God's Word says that I should obey. So are you willing to let go of what you want for what God wants for you? The times of testing are growing right now. Being obedient to God is coming at a greater cost than it has before. 
And I would dare say that the cost will increase. And if you know much about economics, you know about supply and demand. And particularly, you know that when the price of something goes up, the supply of it goes down. So for Christians, when the price of being obedient to Christ go up, the number of Christians who are who continue in obedience is going to go down because many who profess the name don't love the Lord. I read an article earlier this week by a researcher named Ed Stetzer. And it was actually, it was an encouraging article in that he said, you see everywhere people talking about the number of Christians in the United States going down and there's a rise of people who say that they're not affiliated with any type of religious organization at all. And so a lot of people are, you know, Christians are fretting over this. But then he broke down some of the numbers and said that, you know, in, in, in the past, the way someone would be counted as a Christian, they just, when they had a survey to fill out, they would say, are you a Christian? Yes. And that would be it. No question of beliefs, no question of any, any other, anything else like that. Many of those Christians never went to church, never professed faith, never were baptized, never did anything. Well, according to God's Word, there's nothing like, there's nothing about that that's Christian. However, he said, the number of people in the United States who have professed in some way that they believe the Lord, and that they are that they attend church regularly has remained at about twenty five to thirty percent since the nineteen seventies and it has not changed. Now I say that to you not not to discourage you, but to say those who are faithful in this country for many years have been a minority. And now, the majority who are not faithful in any way are becoming less and less so. They're not even trying to keep the form of godliness. And so as the times of trial increase, we as believers are going to have to determine new and creative ways of making our beliefs clear and of obeying clearly despite consequences. Remember the Rechabites in the book of Jeremiah. They were told by their father, do not plant vineyards, do not drink wine, and don't build permanent houses. And when the prophet Jeremiah himself invited them to a banquet to drink wine, they all refused to a man because they said, our father instructed us to not do this. And Jeremiah, speaking on behalf of God, said, because you are obedient, therefore you will be allowed to remain in the land and there will not be a man that fails to stand before me. And there wasn't because they were faithful. They obeyed. Even when one who was speaking as a prophet of God asked him to do what their father had said not to. God blessed them for their obedience and He will bless us for ours.
Number three, we are called to when we love God to understand history the way God Himself does. We're called to understand history the way God does. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You say, what does that have to do with what you said? Well, that is one particular view of history that stands in opposition to the regular story told by the world of history. And we have to view, we have to make a choice of looking at all that has happened in the past in a broad sense and even in a narrow sense in our own lives from the perspective of God. You say, well, I'm not infinite. How can I do that? By looking at it through the lens of the Word and allowing God's Word to teach you what He says about what has happened and not allowing your own experience, personal feelings, or ideas that you receive from the local professor at whatever the college is that you attended. I'm not saying that everything a professor says is wrong. But the 90% that teach the wrong things give the 10% that don't teach the wrong things a bad name. They're opposing accounts of how God brought the world into existence. We have the responsibility not only of believing the right way again, but of telling history from God's perspective. Why does it matter whether God used millions of years or six days in creation? Because if you believe in millions of years, then that means that God Himself has no problem with death. No problem with death. Death is fine. It's it's great. It's it's all in there. He has no problem with death. He has no problem with deforming mutations taking place before sin entered the world. If you believe in millions of years. If you believe in what is called progressive creationism. Because even before Adam, you must believe that there were subhuman creatures who are eventually building up to what would be Adam. And they died. And some of them had some great deformities. All of that, if you believe in a long view of the creation of the world, you believe that God said it is very good. That is not the God of Scripture. Now, I'm not saying, please don't misunderstand, I'm not saying that someone, is, that, that someone can't be a Christian unless they believe in literal six-day creation, okay? I'm not saying that at all. I have friends who don't. And I love them, and I believe that they are faithful disciples. But, I believe that that view has made its way into our world, and it's become stronger. The the, the view that says that we want to harmonize evolution and the scriptural account of creation in order to gain respectability from outside. 
that has been the devil's bait. And it is poisoning the church from the inside because many have taken the bait. Or another example of understanding history from God's view, are we under God's judgment right now as a nation? Or are we finally allowing the greatest number to choose whatever they prefer, whatever lifestyle, if you want to marry seven times, that's fine. If you want to have abortion as a form of birth control, that's fine. If you want to take pills that will cause a child who has been conceived to be aborted, that's fine. Do we believe that allowing people to make any choice that they want and not confronting them with sin is a good thing? Or do we believe that this is God's judgment? Those are two very different views of the way things are going right now. And you can find both of those views. And one certainly has the dominance in the media. So we have to decide. History is something real, okay? It's real things that have happened and it's telling a real story and we have to know what side of the track are we going to stand on. Are we going to stand on it from the perspective of God Almighty or are we going to accept what the world tells us? Again, this takes us back to the need to know God's Word, but not just in a wooden manner. It's not just knowing this is the doctrine of election, this is the doctrine of the atonement, this is the doctrine of Christ, this is the doctrine of God Himself. There's more to it than just the systematic part. There's knowing this is how God works. When a people disobey, if you read further in Deuteronomy, when people disobey, He brings judgment. And then... When there is confession and repentance, He will bring restoration in time. But there must be true confession and repentance. And as long as a people remain stubborn and willful in contradicting what He has said, He will continue to increase His judgment. Unless we understand this, we cannot love God with all of our heart because we will accept what the world says about what has happened rather than what our Heavenly Father has said. And the last element of loving God with all of our heart that I want to cover is using God-honoring rituals and symbols. Using God-honoring rituals and symbols. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Verse 26, Paul writes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till He come. As Christians, we cannot escape having symbols. We can't do it. We can try. But even in in our attempts to try, there will still be something displayed. If a man hates art, 
and says, my home will not have any art in it at all. Those empty walls show something. They say something about that man's beliefs. They symbolize something. And that is that he believes that, visual, that the visual arts are, are at best useless and at worst harmful. All of them. But Christians, as Christians, we are commanded to have and practice certain rituals and to have certain symbols. This morning, we have already engaged in some of those. First of all, we're all here. We come here weekly. And those of us that can come also in, on Tuesday nights. That is a ritual. I know that that, that word sounds scary but, but because we think of, of people dressed up in all kinds of weird robes and, and doing all kinds of bizarre things. But no, we all have rituals. You wake up every morning. That's a ritual. Okay? You go downstairs, and I bet some of you eat three meals a day. That's a ritual. Ritual is something you, that is a repetitive action that you do and it has meaning behind it. Well, we're this morning going to partake in what Paul spoke of. When we partake of this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are showing His death. We are acknowledging what our Lord Jesus has done on our behalf and what He will do in the culmination of time. We are proclaiming His death. We attend church, we take communion, we baptize, we preach, sing, and we pray. All of these things depict, they show something about who we are. We use hymnals. That says something. Our hymnals have notes. You say, so what? So what? So we believe in a God who not only gives us a single line that we all sing in unison, we believe in a Trinitarian God who brings in not only the lead line, but who brings in all the harmony together. We work and we sing together in a way, ideally, that is uplifting to Him and it brings in sounds that are glorifying just as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together in a way that they glorify one another. That's what our hymnal depicts. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 14, Moses writes, or wrote to the people of Israel about how, when he was writing about what they were to do, he said, And it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What is this that thou shalt say unto him? By strength of hand the Lord brought us out from Egypt from the house of bondage. Now, when he said, What is this? That's reference to the Passover. The idea is that the children would have questions about why do we do this? And when they do, you need to have a reason behind it. Well, it's important for us not only to partake in rituals and symbols, but to know why we do so. It's not just an empty thing, which sadly for some people it is. Some people say, you know, as long as I come, as long as I am baptized, it doesn't matter. Yes, it does matter. 
Everything that you do in the church of God says something about you and it says something about the God that you serve. We must have these symbols, these rituals, not only in our church, but in our homes. Do you practice daily devotions with your family? Will you, those of you that are not married, will you practice daily devotion with your family? Why? Is it just something that, you know, this is what good Christians do, what my preacher said anyway. He's going to ask me if I do it or not, so I've got to make sure I conform. If that's the only purpose, you're missing it. That That's not why we do that. We do that because we are taught as fathers to instruct your children in righteousness and to lead your wives in righteousness. When it gets hard, when those daily devotions become difficult, are you going to say, huh, when the going gets tough, we quit? Or are you going to persist? Now, one that will... And I don't mean to cause any controversy when I ask this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Will we only celebrate secular holidays? You know, July 4th, Labor Day, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. Are those the days that we, you know, because we're given off by the state for, for those things. So, you will do certain things on those days if you're not required to go into work. Or will there be celebrations in your home? And I'm not saying that they have to be called by any particular name, but I will say, will there be any rituals in your home that will celebrate what God has done in the past? Or will it always... Because something that I've noticed myself... And I would say it, it's it's a little bit troublesome. The United States, in general, Christians, a lot of times, will go a whole lot more on celebrating July 4th than they do celebrating what the Lord has done in His death, burial, and resurrection. Now, I'm not saying that there should be a law at all. I don't really care if there is. But I'm saying we have to decide what we will give appreciation to and what we will not. And when we give greater appreciation to the birth of a country... and greater recognition to that than to the birth of our God in human flesh. That's something we need to carefully consider what message we present. Now, at the end of the day, all of these things that I've mentioned, knowing the Word, obeying His commands, understanding history from His perspective and using God-honoring rituals and symbols, all of them 
sadly, they can be done in a legalistic, hard-hearted, and altogether mean way. It can be something where, look, we're going to do this. You are going to memorize these verses. And if you don't, it's going to be really bad. Or, if you believe in evolution, you will go straight to hell and I'm going to laugh. Okay, That's not the way to get the point across. No, it all must be done in grace. It all must be done with joy. Not because of an obligation, but because we love the Lord our God. And we want to honor Him with what we have, with what He's given us. That must be our motivation. It must be in grace. We cannot try to do this on our own. None of us can love God apart from His grace. And we must daily acknowledge our need of His grace and not attempt to do any of this in a legalistic way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and I thank you that your word is clear and it pierces our hearts. I pray that you would now bless us as we partake of this meal that you have provided for us. And may we partake in faith in Jesus' name. Amen.